Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, the 50th state in the Union, the great state of Hawaii. Isn't that right? Seems right to me. I believe it's uh, 50th. And uh, we're going to go to Hawaii today, and we're going to take an amazing tour. Indeed we are. I'm really looking forward to it. And this is, this is a fun one for us, you know, coastal and ocean folks. You know, yep. I have kind of a general rule. If it happens in Hawaii, it is a coastal slash ocean uh, related topic because be. we're talking about this island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Right. And that gets you wondering, like, how what what is this island? How was it created? And we've actually we've been talking to a lot of geologists recently. We're on a we're on a roll. We're on a geology kick uh, for some reason, but it's been fabulous. It really has. So we're going to keep it going. We are. We're going to go to the Big Island of Hawaii, Tyler, with the which is the home of an active volcano going on right now, and uh, we have with us an incredible guest to talk about this topic and to explain what's going on on the Big Island. Uh, we are going to be talking today to Dr. Matthew Patrick. He is a research geologist with the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. He's an employee of the United States Geologic Survey. And he's been at the uh, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory for 14 years. He is a professor, I mean, it's a professor, he's a PhD in geology. And uh, I can't wait to talk to a professional who's been on the ground on this island for so long. And uh, it's going to be just dynamic. It's going to be explosive. It's going to be explosive, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. But the thing is, we're talking about volcanoes. Yeah. And, and we're going to be talking about Kilauea and... The, the, the volcanoes of the the Hawaiian islands and how they're connected, uh, what what's going on there just yeah. generally. Currently erupting, We're, I believe. That's right, yeah. And, and we've been watching some really cool uh, nighttime photography of the lava lake in Kilauea, and it's just super beautiful. And, man, we, we got to talk about this on yeah. ASP. It's, yeah, one of the best shows we've ever come up with. it's I think it's going to be really fun. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be... Strap yourselves in for a, for an explosive <laughs> volcano show. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Matthew Patrick, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you for uh, being part of our show and talking to our listeners today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, Matthew, uh, I, I in the pre-show I joked about it, but you know, how does a high school kid uh, become interested in geology and then end up going to Cornell and, and getting a degree, a bachelor's degree in, in geology? What were you into as a kid that sent you down this path? Oh yeah, like well, like a lot of geologists, I kind of started off um, really uh, kind of in love with the outdoor, being outdoors, and um, you know, I actually I started my major in archaeology because um, you know I was interested in international travel and working in the field, um, and one of the requirements was to take a ge an intro geology course, and and actually that first semester, I found that I, I really fell in love with geology and kind of liked that more, so I uh, pretty quickly switched my major. But um, I also had some friends uh, in college who were upper level uh, geology majors. And I saw that they were doing international travel to do field work and uh, working out in the field. So um, yeah, that was, um, it was, it basically uh, really appealed to me. And, um, and I could say that, yeah, the career has really, um, has really worked out well. Well, I gotta say, I, I'm curious because, you know, you, you study volcanoes and, you know, in the, in the, in the, it seems like in the spectrum of geology, yeah. the volcano science has got to be like the the lifespan of the mosquito or something <laughs> like, like, cause you know, geology, you're talking about millions and billions of years. And, and so can you, I mean, were you a normal geology student? <laughs> were you like a really fast paced guy? What, what, what drew you toward volcanology? 
Yeah, it was it was um, not really planned for me. Um, I when I was an undergraduate, I kind of got interested in a field of geology called remote sensing, which is using satellite data to you know, study geology and map out geology. And um, one of the opportunities for uh, doing a master's degree was up at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And uh, so I went there and they were using remote sensing or basically satellite data to monitor the volcanoes up in Alaska. And those volcanoes, many of them are very remote, you know, down the Aleutian chain. So they don't have necessarily very robust kind of ground monitoring networks. And uh, they use satellite data, uh, thermal satellite data uh, to monitor the volcanoes there. And um, so I, I kind of fell into volcanoes through, through that route and really found that I, uh, yeah, really found volcanoes fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was kind of the start of the my uh, kind of my uh, love of volcanoes. Then it went, you know, to a PhD in, in Hawaii here, and uh, and the job here on the Big Island. Well, it sounds like a, a really great uh, uh, academic career from Cornell to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and then University of Hawaii Manoa. Uh, pretty extraordinary places to be, Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, how long have you been at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory? So I started working here in 2000, late 2007. And uh, this period was, um, it, it's been an interesting period because just a, maybe about four months after I started working at HVO, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, uh, we had a summit eruption. It had been the first summit eruption on Kilauea in like 25 years. And at the same time, we had this long-lived eruption on the flank on, on the, at Puuo'o on the East Rift Zone. So basically within um, uh, four months, we had this new eruption. It was very exciting to see you know, a whole new eruption unfold. And for most of my time here, we've had uh, these two simultaneous eruptions going on. So there's a lot of interesting activity, a lot of work, um, a lot of data uh, to collect and, uh, and uh, try to understand. Perfect timing on the arrival, late 2007, and then the summit eruption in, I think it was March 2008. And, exactly. Uh, so no time to, to waste when you got there. Uh, what was it like showing up at an active volcano, one that you didn't have to remotely sense with a satellite but could get close to? What was that experience like uh, yeah, that's, in, in that first summit eruption? That's a really good, important distinction here, yeah, because um, a lot of... Um, like I said, in Alaska, a lot of the monitoring was done remotely via satellite data. Um, whereas you know, in Hawaii, we have the volcanoes. Um, well, the, the lava lake that was active for 10 years was literally outside my, um, within sight of my office window uh, for a decade. So and just a, a, I don't know, a couple minute drive um, down the road. So, yeah, it's just so much more accessible here. And that's really, you know, one of the keys uh, to what makes uh, Hawaii uh, volcanoes special it's just that accessibility you know you can uh, you can access them very easily you can walk uh, walk up to them and um, and of course you can put out instruments and so you can really collect a lot of robust data to try to understand what's going on yeah so tell us why uh, why the USGS has established the Hawaii volcano observatory what's the what's the mission there? Yeah, our ultimate mission is really to um, uh, monitor hazards and reduce the risk from volcanic hazards. And, you know, Hawaii is uh, an important kind of a special place for that just because uh, it has so much activity. So it, it provides a lot of uh, data to try to understand how volcanoes work. Um, I mentioned this before, and the, um, there was a famous uh, bank robber uh, called Willie Sutton. And when he was arrested, the, the news person interviewed him and said, why do you, why do you rob banks? And his response was simply, oh, well, that's where the money is. Yeah. And uh, so for volcano monitoring and volcano research, uh, you know, one approach to understanding that is if you want to understand how eruptions work, you go to where the eruptions are. And uh, Kilauea has been uh, very productive, obviously, in the last couple hundred years in producing eruptions. So it's a great place to collect a lot of data and to test instruments and really, you know, kind of collect those big data sets to, to dig into. If you would, and, and for the audience out there, and I would include me in this, who are not familiar with what it is that you monitor and what data is important, 
Could you get us, give us an overview of what it is that you are attempting to understand with the instruments? What type of instruments, what kind of data are you collecting every day? Sure, we have a whole suite of uh, different kinds of instruments. You know, the, the backbone of any volcano observatory is, is seismology. So it's uh, seismometers that are deployed around the volcano that are measuring, um, detecting earthquakes and locating earthquakes. You know, obviously when magma is rising to the surface, it's breaking rocks. So earthquakes are one of the best indicators of, you know, uh, of an impending eruption. Um, also when the magma chamber is kind of inflating and stressing the uh, surrounding rocks, uh, that's another sign that, that or process that can produce earthquakes. Another thing that seismometers track is volcanic tremor. So once magma reaches the surface and creates an eruption, uh, then you kind of have this kind of background hum vibration going on, and that's volcanic tremor. And, and that often correlates with kind of the eruption vigor. So uh, it's not just earthquakes as magma rises to the surface, but once an eruption starts, you get volcanic tremor, and that's kind of a proxy, uh, can be a proxy for eruption vigor. So. Seismometers uh, are one, you know, common tool. Like I said, kind of the backbone of any volcano observatory. The other thing that's monitored is ground deformation. So, when a magma chamber uh, is uh, pressurizes or inflates, uh, it, it shifts the ground, it, it uplifts the ground, and we have very sensitive instruments like uh, very sensitive GPS sensors, uh, much more sensitive than the ones you'd have in your phone or in your car. Um, these are these can get down to like millimeter precision or sub-centimeter at least. And uh, tilt meters, which are kind of like a fancy carpenter's level um, in the ground um, that can measure kind of uh, pressure uh, stress on the ground very precisely. So those are the ways that we kind of track hmm. the way the ground moves basically as a proxy for what the magma chamber uh, is doing beneath the surface. Is there any sort of, uh, uh, you know, we just spoke with, uh, Tamara Khan, who did seismic imagery of the deep ocean mm -hmm. using, not seismic, she used, she used uh, magnetic. Electro electromagnetic. Electromagnetic, surveys. yeah. I'm wondering, and, and they could really you know, determine layers, and I'm wondering, I, I'm, I really, like, is, is there an equivalent here um, with a volcano where you can kind of take a, an ultrasound or something of the, you know, an x-ray of, of the inside of the mountain and see where the voids are and... Is that, is that a part of it as well? Yeah, there have been campaigns where people go out and do magnetic surveys and, and that can help um, kind of locate um, uh, the magmatic system, but also kind of the hydrothermal system around the magmatic system. So the kind of the, the water table or the hot water table uh, surrounding the uh, magmatic system. Another thing that's commonly used, probably more commonly is is it's called seismic tomography. So you have your existing network of seismometers and there are ways to process the data so that you can kind of back out a 3D image of what's going on ah. beneath the surface. But those, you know, that, that image is, you know, the, the pixels are maybe a, a kilometer or half a kilometer in size. So it's, it's kind of a coarse picture. There's actually work underway or, or efforts to try to, to, um, to kind of update that uh, tomographic imaging with some new instrumentation and a, um, new um, new techniques. So, um, if that happens in the coming years, maybe that hopefully that'll produce a, a much more detailed picture of the magnetic system. What a great place to experiment and study and learn mm -hmm. uh, with an active volcano that you've had uh, for over the last ten to fourteen years. Um, I'd like to learn a little bit more about these volcanic tremors, Tyler. Tyler. Mm -hmm. All you right. Know? And uh, I'm wondering that you said that when the magma erupts and it's uh, and it's coming across the surface, it creates this buzz in the background, and you can detect that, and that's related to the vigor of the eruption. Um, are you talking about sort of an audio sensor, or is that a seismic sensor? What what do you mean by volcanic tremor, and what what type of instrument is is used to detect that? Yeah, so um, actually the answer, whether it's seismic or acoustic, the answer is really both. Um, there is um, what's called infrasound. So it's, it's sound at you know, a range that beyond human hearing. Um, and those, uh, the infrasound is a common way of tracking the eruption vigor. And that produces kind of tremor. And if you think about it, like if you have an eruption, you know, you have uh, 
bubbles bursting at the surface and spattering and fountaining, that's going to produce energy that's kind of coupling into the air. And that's what the infrasound can track. But you also obviously have that, that kind of disruption and vibration coupling into the ground, which the seismometers um, will uh, be sensitive to. So it's kind of complementary that you're, you know, uh, with infrasonic tremor, you have these um, uh, microphones that can measure, you know, acoustic vibrations in the air. And then your seismometers are measuring how those vibrations are transmitted into the ground. Well, I've got to say, it's obviously a very sophisticated science. And I imagine, as we've learned with other uh, sciences these days, that big data and computer modeling, I'm sure, are um, helping understand how to put all these pieces together. Is that Could you d describe to us how, how big data and, and computer modeling are, are working at work here in your understanding of Kilauea? Yeah, I think that is kind of one of the future trends here or in volcanology in general. Um, I was at a recent um, scientific conference and it seemed like every other poster or presentation had machine learning you know, in the title. So I think that is kind of where things are going. And, and obviously, like you said, the reason is because, you know, there's there's so much data coming in. It's kind of beyond what, you know, a, a person can kind of manually handle and analyze. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, one of the things that's happening is that, you know, uh, technology is becoming uh, better and cheaper and smaller, easier to deploy. So there's a lot more opportunities to collect really robust data. And well, like you alluded to, um, that volume of data is can be unmanageable if you're just kind of dealing with it, you know, uh, kind of by eye or manually. So there are initiatives, and I think that is one of kind of the hot topics uh, dealing with, um, you know, machine learning and, and, and quantitative and kind of quantity, more quantitative modeling. So really, you know, um, uh, these kind of physics based models that are very sophisticated and try to model kind of the behavior of the magma chamber and then the, yeah. you know, the, the crustal rocks uh, around that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, lo I love that stuff. I think it's a great tool in the tool bag. Yep. But as I like to joke on this show, I go a little Charles Barkley on the big data, which is to say that, you know, I like to just watch the game. I'd like to, you know, I, I think there's really a value in uh, for scientists, whether they're coastal scientists, coastal geologists, yeah. deep sea scientists to not only look like uh, yeah. uh, our deep sea geologist we spoke to. She wants to look at the sample. She wants to look at the cores yep. with yeah. her eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And and really get science. yeah. It's, that helps her her understand what it is exactly she's doing. And so much of this, I've just to you know, it has to do with the human creativity here. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that there's just there is space between the zero and the one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but um, you know, I'll use this to segue a little bit. Hawaii is is an absolutely stunning place, and it stands out on the map. You've got the the world's largest, most dominant ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and there, in the very middle of it, is this little island chain. Um, clearly, geologically, that is interesting. Um, could you do us the honor of telling us what it wh what happened there with the creation of Hawaii and 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 the volcanoes that created it? Well, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so, yeah, so Hawaii is, um, the volcanoes here are, are, uh, are created from a hot spot in the mantle. It's, it's very deeply rooted in the mantle. And, you know, that creates melting of, uh, of the upper mantle and that, that magma rises up to the surface, uh, erupts, you know, erupted onto the ocean floor, started building volcanoes and, um, and built these islands. And at this, that, that hot spot, which is rooted kind of statically in the mantle, um, is then overridden by the Pacific plate, which is moving at what, 10 centimeters a year or something uh, toward the Northwest. The hot spot's been around for, well, at least 70 million years or so. Um, and that crustal plate um, that's riding over, uh, it's kind of like uh, what they say is uh, putting a, um, having a candle flame and then passing a piece of paper over the top of that, you'll get a line of, you know, burn through the, the, um, the paper in the same way you get a line of volcanoes that are formed, uh, in the crust um, on the surface. 
And as those, uh, as the plate, as the volcano is basically kind of carried off the hot spot, then they become kind of progressively less active and a little bit different in their chemical composition. Um, but when the volcanoes are right over the hotspot, uh, then they're kind of in the prime of their life. And that is basically what we have for Kilauea and Mauna Loa um, on the big island here. The big island, or island of Hawaii, I should say, is formed from five volcanoes, uh, overlapping volcanoes. Right. Three of them have been active in historic times, the last uh, written historic times, the last 200 years. And um, the most active have been Mauna Loa and Kilauea. And in the last, well, well, in the last year, we've had Kilauea erupt. Uh, it's had two eruptions in the last year. So we're, uh, Kilauea is still very active and we're in, uh, yeah, we're monitoring that current activity right now. So the, the island of Hawaii, or also called the Big Island, is the largest mm -hmm. of the chain of islands. Um, mm -hmm. And is it because the other islands uh, erode over time? Or if you looked back in the history of the island chain, uh, were there other islands that were of comparable size to the current Big Island? You know, I, I'm remembering from a paper I read that the Big Island, I, as I recall, was is actually kind of anomalously large. And so that's still kind of an open question is why the Big Island is so big. So even if you go and reconstruct, you know, and uh, uh, the old uh, you know, islands like Maui and, and Oahu, build them up to their original size, you know, when they were over the hotspot, uh, they still wouldn't compare to the Big Island hmm. is my understanding. So that's, uh, as far as I understand, there's still kind of an open question as to why the, the Big Island is so big. So you've got five volcanoes on the Big Island, and a couple of them, it sounds like two or three of them are currently active. So I've got to ask this question, Tyler, about the predictability of this, because you were oh, there wow. 14 years, and the whole purpose of monitoring this is, and collecting the data and the seismology and all of the instrumentation that's there is in order to, as you said, it's a public safety issue, and mm -hmm. you're trying to anticipate the behavior of the volcano. So I have to ask... Uh, How'd the USGS do on these most recent eruptions? Were these things that you anticipated? Yeah, well, it's still a challenge. You know, I think our understanding of volcanoes is still, you know, uh, st st still you know, in development. Um, but, you know, we, we it's often said that, you know, that, that the, the current state of volcano forecasting is kind of pattern recognition. Um, where you see, you know, certain indicators like earthquake rates increase or the ground deformation start, you know, start to bulge. And you can see these things happening, but there's still a lot of uncertainty as to, right. you know, what's ultimately going on beneath the surface in the magma chamber. Yeah. And the other problem is that you can watch these things. And this is, this has happened a couple of times since I've you know, been here is that you can watch these indicators ramp up, but you still don't understand the system well enough to know when that critical point is going to be reached. So, you know, you can be on kind of high alert, but you don't necessarily know when exactly uh, an eruption will start. And sometimes uh, it's, it's kind of a false alarm. Sometimes things pressurize and then basically uh, maybe create an intrusion beneath the surface that doesn't reach this, uh, the surface and cause, cause an eruption. So you can still get some false alarms. But yeah, there's still a lot of uncertainty on where, when that critical point you know, is reached. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, I will note, I was just out there and there are nine on uh, the island of Hawaii. There are nine risk zones. So there's there's yeah. clearly nine different levels. I mean, that's quite a few. But I have to ask, okay, Matthew. So uh, the big island, I mean, it's big, but it's not, it's not that big. And particularly when you consider the fact that 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 island had to come all the way up from the bottom of the sea, you know, the seabed all the way up. And Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are big mountains. Uh, mm -hmm. And so is it really five? See, I, I, I want to say, is that just one big volcano? What makes it five distinct volcanoes? Yeah, we know that the um, like uh, there's often... So the most active volcano is Mauna Loa and Kilauea right now. It was in the past, it was, you know, people wondered whether they were simply one volcano that was connected at depth, but um, we know that their plumbing systems, their magmatic plumbing systems are distinct. Um, and part of that is from the chemistry of the lava um, uh -huh. that's being erupted. So that's distinct. So, you know, presumably, uh, well, we know that there's some shared hotspot zone beneath, you know, deep beneath the surface, 
but but above that point, um, those plumbing systems diverge. And so each wow. of these volcanoes I have see. their own kind of isolated, distinct plumbing system. That's but what's, cool. interest, what's interesting, though, is that there are still some correlations or anti-correlations between Mauna Loa and Kilauea. So even though they have distinct plumbing systems, they're still neighbors and they can still, you know, feel each other and press against each other. So, you know, there is this kind of, uh, there is evidence to suggest that there is this kind of anti-correlation between Mauna Loa activity and Kilauea activity when, when Mauna Loa is really active, Kilauea is less active. And so maybe that's because, you know, when one is stressing the other, it kind of subdues activity in the neighbor. That's very, very helpful to learn. And I, and I appreciate you mentioning the chemical composition of the lava. I've seen this on TV, right? Just yeah. The guy's got the silver suit. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's, all, <laughs> he's got like a scooper. He's going to throw that thing <laughs> he's in. He's in a bucket, you know? And yeah. He's down there and he's, like a hammer. Right. And just get grabbing a sample <laughs> and throw it in a bucket. And I always wonder, what the hell do you do when you get with that back to the lab? I mean, yeah. tell us a little bit about lava sampling and why it's important to understand the chemical composition or what it what the hell is it that you're you're testing when you pick up these samples yeah it's and this isn't my area of expertise though i'm i'm basically just the the person that goes out and collects the samples for the for the folks who who know more than i do that's the fun um, part isn't it <laughs> yeah, so it you is. get to go out there and throw, you're the guy throwing the the thing in <laughs> yeah so there's a bunch of ways to collect lava it depends on the the kind of the activity style. Um, a common, you know, for many years during the Pu'o eruption from 83 to um, 2018, um, there were kind of slow moving pahoehoe flows, these kind of s small uh, flows moving, uh, spreading out on the coastal flats here. And you could easily walk up to them um, and you'd have a rock hammer and you might, you know, put a balaclava or something over your face, but you could just dip the rock hammer in and, and collect a little bit of lava. And then what you do is you dip that into um, a bucket of water to, to quench the sample. And, uh, and then you just wait for it to cool off a minute and then you put it into your sample bag. Uh, the reason that we quench it immediately is that you don't rock. want it. Uh, yeah, you want it kind of to lock it in its pristine, pristine state. You don't want it to kind of cool slowly because then it'll crystallize more and stuff. Huh. But um, so yeah, just that just the rock hammer is one common way to sample it. But uh, sometimes if you have say a lava channel um, this is trickier. You have to walk up to the edge, you know, as safely as you can. And, um, you might have, uh, you know, we use something like a heavy, uh, hammerhead on a, uh, cable, steel cable. And basically you just toss it in, um, and, uh, it sinks into the lava and then you pull it back as fast as you can. Um, and it's kind of covered, kind of slathered with fresh lava. And then you dunk that into a bucket of water. So I take it that lava, you know, it's just there's a lot of different types of lava, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, like rain. It's like the Forrest Gump scene with all the rains. There's like a lot of different types of lava. So uh, to what what are you dealing with there? I mean, in with Kilauea, are these <clears throat> characterized this lava compared to other types of lava? Well, I can I can say one of the reasons that we collect the samples is it, it does give some really valuable insight on where it's coming from in the in the plumbing system. So oftentimes um, when we have eruptions on the rift zones, the eruptions will start by um, magma that's kind of coming through the system will actually, um, it'll kind of push out or remobilize old lava that's been kind of sitting there in the system for decades possibly. So it often happens in these rift zone eruptions that the, the first lava that comes out is um, kind of cooler, older lava that's been kind of just residual there. It's almost like akin to um, turning on the, uh, well, this I'm borrowing this analogy from a person who was in the audience of a talk I gave, and, and they gave me permission to borrow this. But it was um, when you turn on the shower in the morning, um, the first water that comes out is that water that's been sitting in the pipes, and it's all cold. You know? And it takes yeah. uh, a few minutes for the fresh, hot water to kind of you know, yeah. come through. That makes so it's sense. kind of like that for these rift zone eruptions. And that's important because that kind of cooler, older lava that's coming out um, is oftentimes uh, kind of more sluggish and more viscous, kind of slower moving. So it's good to kind of be able to track that kind of quantitatively and track the chemistry quantitatively and say, hey, this is this is older lava that's been sitting there crystallizing, and that explains maybe why it's you know it's kind of slower moving. But in, 
um, we had a very large eruption in 2018. And this is exactly what happened. And the geochemists who were monitoring it were able to show kind of in real time on a day-to-day -day basis how the composition was changing. And the opening stages where this was this kind of viscous, cold, kind of slow moving, you know, sluggish lava. The implication was that, hey, when the fresh lava comes out, you know, which presumably it would, um, that's when we really have to worry because then the eruption rates, you know, could increase, the, the viscosity will drop, you know, be much more fluid lava, and that could be potentially dangerous. And, uh, and that's what happened in 2018, unfortunately, when um, the initial phases were relatively kind of weak uh, with this old kind of sluggish residual lava. And then when the system kind of opened and the fresh lava or magma came through, that's when we saw the really large uh, destructive lava flows that destroyed a lot of properties. So can you give us a, kind of a, a general status report? And you've mentioned several of the volcanoes so far, which ones are active, but mm -hmm. would you mind giving us sort of a summary overview of the current volcanic activity on the island of Hawaii? Sure. Um, of the three volcanoes that have erupted in the past couple hundred years, there's Hualalai on the, on the west coast near Kona. Um, that last eruption in 1801, uh, let's see, it had an intrusion, you know, an earthquake swarm, I think around 1930, but it's been quiet since then. We, ha we don't see any you know, significant changes in recent decades there. So um, that's obviously good because it's quite close to um, you know, uh, residential areas and, and uh, tourist areas. Um, Mauna Loa, that's the big volcano here. That's, it's uh, the largest active volcano on Earth. It makes up more than 50% of the island of Hawaii. Wow. And its last eruption was in 1984. And that sent a lava flow that came very close to Hilo, which is the largest city uh, on the island here. And so, you know, with it covering 50% of the island, you can imagine there's a lot of residential areas that are downslope of, you know, potential vents on the volcano. So there's a lot of hazard potential with Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa has been kind of tricky in recent years because it's had these episodes of inflation and increased earthquake activity and, and really, you know, been a cause for concern. But then it just kind of dies out. That activity kind of dies out. And um, right now... Indigestion. Yeah, <laughs> like that. And right now it's, it's, we're kind of, it's kind of in a, a more quiet phase. Um, so, yeah, we don't see, you know, signs of imminent activity on Mauna Loa right now. But, of course, things can change quickly. So we're always, you know, paying close attention to it. And, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, please finish. I just want to end with, of course, Kilauea, which is active right now at the moment. And, you know, the, Kilauea has this really kind of storied history here because it's had so much activity um, in the past 200 years. Uh, you know, all through the 1800s or through much, much of the 1800s into the early 1900s, there was a continuously active lava lake in the summit caldera. Um, and, you know, uh, Mark Twain visited in 1866 and, you know, wrote about seeing the lava lake. Um, and that was really the impetus for founding of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory in 1912. Uh, it was really just, you know, that continuous lava lake activity was such a great opportunity to kind of watch a volcano in action. Um, and then through the 1900s, uh, well, that lava lake phase ended in 1924 with some explosions. Uh, and then through the rest of the 1900s, there were kind of episodic eruptions, some at the summit, some on the flanks, on the, on the rift zones. And um, in 1983, uh, one of the more notable eruptions is we, there was a, uh, the eruption of Pu'u'o started, and this was on the rift zone, so on the flank of the volcano. That eruption continued for uh, what 35 years, so really long-lived wow. eruption. Yeah, and um, that uh, so that yeah started in '83. Uh, it was going on when I arrived in 2007, and then shortly after I arrived, you know, we had the summit eruption start. Can I can I ask so, you a quick clarifying question about Pou'u? Sure. Is that a part of Kilauea, or is it an independent plumbed volcano? Yeah, so so Pou'u is uh, basically like a, like a satellite vent. So, uh. um, so, you know, Kilauea has this uh, structure where it has a, a magma chamber under the summit caldera. And then, you know, emanating out from the summit, you have these two rift zones. There's the Southwest rift zone and then the East rift zone. 
And these rift zones are, are zones of you know structural weakness that magma kind of preferentially moves, travels along, and can erupt along. So you know when that magma chamber inflates, it can sometimes cause eruptions at the summit, uh, or it can sometimes drive magma you know along the rift zone, sometimes for many miles, um, down the rift zone, down the flank of the volcano, and to erupt you know farther down on the lower flank. So those are those rift zone eruptions can be very destructive because you know there are residential areas on the on the lower flanks of the volcano. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to be there. And you know, I'm going to yeah, be there. He, Peter's going to be staying in one. I'm going to be there. We're staying in. I think it's Papua, which is in uh, uh, lava risk zone two, I believe. Which yeah. is the uh, second. Pahoa, I think. Yeah. Pahoa, is that what it's called? Is the yeah. one of the higher ends. Uh, my uh, in-laws are a little nervous about this, but they're very, very interested. Two in out opinion. of nine. Yeah, it's and, and level and two one, out of one nine. One is I'd... the most risky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Matthew? Are we are we going to be okay? We're going to be there, you know, around Thanksgiving time. Uh, any reason to be? No, I shouldn't ask you that. Of course, there's reason to be concerned. But Well, I, I can say right now that we don't see any signs of elevated activity along the rift zones. Right, right now, we have this ongoing summit eruption. So, you know, presumably that's kind of bleeding off, you know, pressure at the summit in the summit magma chamber that would, you know, reduce the risk of magma moving along the rift zone. I get it. Uh, but I will say that the summit eruption just over the past day, it's really kind of um, decreased in vigor. So um, we'll watch it. Um, you know, if, if the eruption stops, then that gives the magma chamber an opportunity uh -oh. to kind of reinflate. Re um, and that's when we have to kind of watch I don't watch like for, the sound you know, of that. <laughs> well, but no, I, I, but that's pretty soon. Your visit is pretty soon, so um, you know that's. Uh, Oof. I, look, look, the, Peter, that sluggish, cool lava comes out first, and you got a little time. Yeah, you know, yeah. you'll be fine. Well, well, I will say, unfortunately, I, I don't know if you're familiar. In 2014, 2015, there was a lava flow crisis in Pahoa, where the um, the Pua eruption, which I was just mentioning, you know, that long-lived eruption, it sent a lava flow in an unusual direction towards mm. the northeast. And that lava slowly, very slowly migrated into Pahoa and um, destroyed a home, uh, covered some property. And it, it really looked like it w that flow was going to destroy more of, of the, the village. Um, but uh, fortunately, the flow uh, stopped uh, right just before the, the main village road. Good. And the, the supply was kind of interrupted and cut off. And yeah. um, the flow was kind of diverted. And then that episode eventually died out. Well, I, I'm just fascinated and, and hope that we have a chance to uh, actually see some of this lava either erupting or maybe up at the summit. Is it possible mm -hmm. for the public um, at the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park uh, to get to a position where you can actually observe the, the summit caldera? Yes, right now in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, there is a lava viewing area that's quite good. Um, it's on the, kind of the south side of the caldera and uh you can walk to this viewing point and actually see the the lava fountaining uh, from a distance maybe a mile maybe a mile away or so right. so you might want to bring binoculars but um it's a pretty cool view i have been there with um, friends and family and um it's really nice you know it's always great uh, to have an opportunity for the public to, to see the activity directly can't wait absolutely i want to ask tyler about we were tyler and i before the show were looking at the map uh, of the uh, hawaiian volcano observatory it's a great website by the way so if you're listening to oh, the show take a you know google it up uh hawaiian volcano observatory it's really fabulous um, but we were looking at the seamount that's to the south and the east of the island um i can't pronounce it i'm sorry i, I won't try uh loi high maybe loihi Loihi, well, that's close. Loihi Seamount. So this is a subsurface uh, sea bottom seamount. Tell me about that. Is is that is that another island beginning to emerge, or what's the what what does this mean? This seamount. Can you introduce us a little bit to what that's about? Sure. It's it's a young volcano, um, and presumably it will build up just like Kilauea and breach the the ocean surface and create a new island. Um, it we've had some swarms of. So we don't have instruments on the ocean floor, at least Hawaiian Volcano Observatory doesn't. Um, uh, we, uh, we have instruments on, on shore that can pick up earthquakes you know, uh, on Loihi. And there have been episodes actually not that long ago, there was some increased activity there. 
not enough to really suggest that there was an eruption, but I think in 1996, there was uh, thought to be an eruption, um, a submarine eruption, obviously, um, and uh, caused a kind of a collapse, crater collapse um, on the volcano. Um, and uh, yeah, it's basically, it's a volcano that's, it's a young volcano. So it's just kind of starting its life. It's not, you know, a middle age or kind of in the prime of its life, like Mauna Loa or, um, or Kilauea. Is it, is it, do we know where the main spigot is or the, you know, the eruption point where the magma that's formed the Hawaiian Island chain, is that really located here at the seamount or is that what's underneath the big island? Is the big island the main vent where the, I, I feel that. Yeah. Is that, is that, the, is it like, cause you know, it's going to be the, I think as he said, the, uh, the, the seamount is on like the, the leading edge. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the way it seems. So I guess, what is it? Mauna Loa? Or is it, yeah, which one's the big, which, which one's which the one, primary yeah, outlet? Which one, yeah, which one do you so, think is the main vent? Yeah, it's still unclear and kind of speculated, but um, uh. what we've seen is um, there is, uh, in recent years, there have been um, kind of increased earthquake activity in a, in a spot that's kind of between Kilauea and Mauna Loa. Um, and it's my understanding that some people think that this is representing the, um, Kind of the you know the the root or the the uh, uh, extension of the hot spot, uh, so it's kind of not be- directly below um, Mauna Loa exactly or below Kilauea, but somewhere in between. In this magma chamber that you mentioned, that you refer to as being very deep below the Earth, um, do you know anything? Do, do, does USGS and the scientific community know much about the magma? How deep is it? How large is it? And what is the volume of that? I mean, is that is that knowable? It is, and there's of course disagreements as to what the volume is. <laughs> um, I love scientists. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how you. I'm find sure out. there's that's, rich debate. Yeah, that's how you find the truth. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's not my specialty, but my understanding is that you know, and that the difference of opinion is like can be over an order of magnitude. So it's still, you know, you get uh, the seismologists who think it's one size and the deformation people who think it's another size and the geochemists who think it's yet another size. Um, but there are some things that people agree on is that, um, uh, and we're, we're just, I'm just talking about the magma chamber at Kilauea right now, okay. beneath the summit, because it's, it's pretty well studied, um, is that it's just a couple, uh, well, we know that there's, there's, it's not just a simple, well, you know, when you write about it in scientific papers, you, nobody uses magma chamber because, um, they don't like to convey or people don't like the idea that it's, you know, just kind of a big empty chamber of magma. It's not a big void in there. Yeah. They think it might be some kind of maybe interconnection of, you know, of, uh, of, uh, you know, a kind of a network of, of melt and, and mush. Um, but, uh, people in the papers generally, generally call it a reservoir, I guess, more a general term. I see. But, um, but it's thought that, that that reservoir, well, actually now they call it, a re, it's commonly called a reservoir complex uh, because it's not just one. I like that. Of, yeah, it's not just one body. There's the, the way that the ground deforms when we have these episodes of, act, of unrest is that there's actually two kind of zones that the inflation and deflation occur along. And the modeling suggests that there is um, a shallow body um, and then a larger, deeper body. And the shallow one is maybe a well, couple kilometers beneath the surface, so just a mile or so. And then the deeper, larger one is what, three to five kilometers, so a, a couple couple miles okay. uh, beneath the surface. So, I mean, relatively shallow, you know, and, and uh, uh, kind of if you look at the whole scale of the volcano, and, you know, that's where the magma is rising up from the hotspot. It's filling those chambers or reservoirs or the reservoir complex, sorry. And, you know, that pressure, the pressure state of those cha- of those reservoirs, uh, the chamber really depend it determines, you know, whether uh, an eruption will occur or whether magma then is pushed along the rift zone to erupt down on the flank. Um, so there's a lot of attention and monitoring of at the summit, you know, to try to infer the state of that summit magma chamber fascinating 
Um, and one of the things that I've noticed and I've, I've got to actually experience when I was at uh, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park mm-hmm. recently was the uh, steam venting. And, you know, that this is all getting me, you know, you're th- I'm thinking about this big magma reservoir complex underneath here. Mm-hmm. But we are surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. Um, what what role does water and groundwater play in the, in this volcano si- system? So that's a really interesting question because it kind of leads into another uh, really kind of fascinating aspect, uh, fascinating and scary aspect of activity on Kilauea. Um, and that relates to kind of uh, the explosive nature uh, of activity at Kilauea or the explosive potential at Kilauea. So most people, when you think of Hawaiian volcanoes and most of the activity that we've seen you know, in recent decades, um, is kind of, you know, slow moving lava flows or lava lakes that are, you know, churning and bubbling. Um, that's the picture that we have, you know, that's, that's, that's the most common activity we've seen over, well, basically over the last couple hundred years. Yeah. And in other words, not the, not the Mount St. Helens or, (laughs) you know, big booming thing. It's like, you know, when you see pictures, photographs of Kilauea, it's kind of bubbling out of there. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's, uh, so one of the, one of my colleagues, Don Swanson, uh, he's worked on this for many years. What he's shown is he's, you know, he, he spends his time looking at the deposits around the summit and he dates those. And he's, what he's found is that over the past, if you look back 2000 years or 2,500 years, you find that the phase that we're in now, which is, you know, lava flows, lava lakes at the summit, um, is part of a cycle that happens. And, um, there are other episodes. The, the summit will cycle through um, phases where that are much more explosive, um, so, and so yeah. there there could be centuries of explosive activity at the summit. This this happened actually most recently between uh, like 1500 and and the late 1700s, early 1800s. So just before um, kind of Western contact, um, or at the time of Western contact, I guess, and, and written records. Um, so so yeah. it's this kind of kind of scarier side of Kilauea um, that's been kind of revealed in in Don's work in recent years. Very interesting. So we're in the golden time if you're a scientist where you can be around it and get close to it and get up. Uh, but there these these conditions are sound like rather mild in the cycle that this volcano uh, Kilauea can go through. Yeah. And that's obviously good for, you know, good. obviously, you know, living near, I, I live uh, just a couple miles from the summit caldera and volcano village. So, um, you know, that's good for me. And, Is that and on your, yeah. when people send you a letter, does it say volcano village, Hawaii? <laughs> Actually, my that, post office is, is boxes in the park. So, but yes, people who live in the village and have their post office box here, yeah, they would have. Now a that's a cool place post to live. Volcano, yeah. okay. and yeah, literally man. true. You get to live in a national park. Now, Tyler, I want to change. Thank. Uh, Matt, thank you for kind of introducing us to the to the geology and the volcanoes. But I want to learn more about what it's like to work there and what what sure, is absolutely. it? Absolutely, you know, Dan the Lion. You've got it. You know, in your fourteen years that you've been on the island and working uh, at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, uh, you know, you've got to share a couple of near misses. What's been the most fascinating or interesting or surprising thing that you've encountered in your in your many years on the on the island? Well, in terms of, I don't know, just um, kind of, you know, uh, f- fascinating activity and, and being able to witness um, the activity here is, is the, I would have to say, um, we had the Summit Lava Lake that was active for 10 years between 2008 and 2018. Um, and that was, you know, just a, a short ride from the uh, observatory, just a couple minutes. I could see it out my uh, office window. Um, so we had, you know, really close kind of relationship with this eruption, um, in that we were, you know, watching it every day and we could see this, you know, this was a lava lake that was 300 yards across, so three football fields across. Um, we could walk, uh, you know, fairly close to it and observe it. And it was just a great, such a great science opportunity and, um, and really just really awe inspiring. And, and I should say, um, you know, this is, uh, uh, the lava lake was active in Haleamaumau Crater, which is uh, the the home of Pele. So it's a very sacred site. Um, it's it's a very you know a, a culturally important site for for many people. Um, 
so it's it was really you know really interesting to see uh, the activity return to Holly Mount Mau um, and be able to you know kind of track it on a day to day basis and, and study it in detail. Um, so that that's that's one of you know the kind of the most um, significant experiences for me personally, but but I will say. Um, kind of on a more somber note that the, probably the most impactful experience I had here was in 2018. Um, that eruption on the lower East Rift Zone uh, was very destructive. Um, it destroyed uh, over 700 homes. And we were monitoring that eruption, you know, on, on the ground um, on a you know, day-to-day basis, uh, trying to forecast where the flows would move and, and where fissures would open. And we interacted with a lot of residents and it was, you know, obviously a really uh, difficult time for obviously people who were losing their property um, and just the area in general um, because there was so much disruption uh, even to people you know who lived in the area who didn't lose their property um, so it was um, obviously had a really big impact on me and it really reinforced the the value of the work that we do here yeah you know this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about because uh, when I was in Hilo uh, just recently, mm-hmm. and I went shopping at that little downtown grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I just I looked around and I was like, "What a resilient!" We we cover the American shoreline, and we talk about resilience mm-hmm. all the time. This kind of social uh, ability to change with a changing coast and mm-hmm. to adapt to uh, a changing climate. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you're a geologist, so you don't have to. You know, it's not the study of of people per se, but um, I'm very curious how um, you read that. Because on the one hand, I, I, you know, uh, as you said, back in the 1500s, there were a lot of Hawaiians um, living there, uh, Hawaiian people, and a thriving culture. And, you know, I learned recently that when Cook made contact in Hawaii, the population of Hawaii was higher then than it is today. Mm. And... Uh, <clears throat> uh, which is fascinating to me, but I'm you know I I, I wonder how how you observed the people uh, uh, suffering through an, an obvious <laughs> major disaster. Uh, I went and saw that. I drove up to the dead end road where the lava mm-hmm. rolled over it and uh, stopped and just looked at it. And it was I mean man, it is incredible. It truly is. And I went to a state park. I'll also say that has where where the lava flowed through and left behind uh almost a a, a remnant of a of trees that were forested through there and uh hawaii the big island and i think the whole chain no doubt that pele is the goddess of fire i believe and um these are volcanoes are just so important to the place and to the culture and and the people and yet uh, Western development has put houses and neighborhoods in maybe places that they shouldn't be. I'm just curious to know, like, how did how did that go down from a social perspective, from from your perspective, having to talk to these people about the risks? Uh, how receptive were they, and and what's your what's your assessment of that? Yeah, we really, I mean, we were focusing on doing what we could to help the community, you know, on a day to day basis. Um, you know, the, the planning on subdivision locations was done decades ago, and I, I really don't know that much about that. Um, but, um, you know, the, it was really tough um, to see this activity. It, the 2018 eruption on the uh, Lower East Rift Zone, the, the eruption rates were very, very high. Um, uh, the eruptions on the lower flank of the volcano tend to have higher eruption rates. Just It's almost like draining a bucket, you know, when you punch a hole at the bottom of a bucket you get kind of more hydraulic head. And so um, it's commonly observed that um, the lower flank eruptions uh, can have high eruption rates. And that's what happened in 2018. So the scale of the activity, you know, was it was orders of magnitude greater than what we had seen in the previous years of the Puo'o eruption. Uh, I can give you a, a number to compare that. The yeah, Puo'o eruption that, that we were watching, the eruption rates were maybe between three and five cubic meters per second of lava erupting at the vent. This is, you know, in the decades before 2018. When the 2018 eruption started, um, the eruption rates were maybe like up to 300 cubic meters per second. Wow. 
So yeah, order two or two orders of magnitude greater. And so, you know, 2018 was huge lava channels, um, much faster moving flows. Um, you know, the, the lava crisis that we had in Pahoa in 2014, was, it was a slow motion crisis. The flows were moving something like 50, 50 yards of 50 meters or 50 yards a day. It was very slow. In 2018, this, these flows were moving 100 meters per hour. So um, much higher eruption rates, much uh, faster moving flows. Yeah, so you know we're dealing with this much bigger scale of activity, which in itself is is um, you know really kind of awe-inspiring. But at the same time, you know we're working, we're we're you know walking through people's properties and and interacting with residents uh, who are in the process of losing their property, and you know many yeah. of these people, you know. You know, built the built the, these properties themselves and tended to them for years, so it, it was really uh, it was really heartbreaking, um, you know, to interact. And, uh, yeah, and I I really appreciate you bringing it to that point. I mean, we're we're fascinated and curious and interested in this place and in these volcanoes, but this yeah. is very very serious work and has very serious implications for the people who have lived there, especially the indigenous community that is still. Uh, very much part of Hawaii and the Big Island. Um, is the are there practices, indigenous practices related to the volcano that still occur, uh, either within the national park or that uh, that the that the indigenous community still? Uh, I don't know if the word is celebrates, but honors this volcanic uh, feature. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I'm not the best source for this um, because, you know, I grew up in the mainland, but um, that's definitely very much alive. Um, and um, you often will find offerings in the National Park uh, because, you know, near or around the summit caldera because of the significance of Halema'ama'u, you know, being the home of Pele. Um, and there's also um, in the National Park, there's a, an elder council that advises the park on cultural issues. So, yeah, it's very much um, a, a very significant um part of of the activity and the culture here i'm sure it is an important part it's great to hear that the park makes allowances for that that's what i would mm -hmm. expect nothing less from from the national park service they're really good with that issue all around the country mm -hmm. well i want to hear more about okay so you know there's the kilauea summit and uh, it's a very cool area this is the national park area but i noticed when i was there that i took a drive up the mountain to another USGS facility, which is, I'm going to say, is it, is it Mauna Kea? Is it Mauna Kea? Is it Mauna Loa? It depends there. So there, or do we have, we have, there's facilities on both. There's like a lot of federal science going yeah. on on the big Island, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's kind of surprising and it's not when you think about it, but uh, major science is going on. Could you tell us kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what's going on uh, elsewhere? Sure. Like you alluded to, there's it's, uh, there's another federal facility on the upper slopes of Mauna Loa. Um, it's not USGS. I think it's NOAA, but um, that's a very important facility because it was um, it was the place that originated the uh, I think it's called the Keeling Curve of the CO2. It's an atmospheric uh, observation uh, facility, and I believe that's the site that has the, the famous Keeling Curve of increasing the kind of sawtooth increasing CO2 concentration over the years. Um, so it's, yeah, it's CO2 monitoring among other things. Um, so that's high on the slopes of Maloa, about 11,000 feet. Um, and then on Mauna Kea, there's uh, a number of telescopes, uh, astronomical telescopes uh, from various wow. uh, facilities and universities and- uh, I wanna go. So it's like a scientist dream land. It is. You I, can it, do it all. It's an incredible, incredible yeah, place. There's, I, there's I, a, I hope we get There's a surprising that. amount of science being done on the Big Island. What an incredible place. This has got to be. I would sit on Tyler if, uh, you know, in the USGS, when when y'all get together at the conference, the guys from the Big Island who are the volcanologists, it's got to be one of the cooler jobs. In the, I mean, there's a lot of great things about the USGS. One of the premier agencies in the federal government, our top scientists in so many fields, spectacular work by the agency. But I've got to imagine, uh, do you have a little bit of a pride in your step when you're getting together with your USGS buddies that you're at the the uh, Hawaiian volcanic volcanic uh, volcano observatory. 
Yeah, I think there's there's some I don't know um, some juice. Some yeah, juice <laughs> no, I think I it. think uh, it, it is nice because I think people um, you know on the mainland let's say realize that um, you know we there are a lot of opportunities that that the geologists here have a lot of opportunities that you don't get on the mainland just to you know work around active lava. Um, I think there was a there was a famous geologist who said something uh, something like the best geologist is the one who's seen the most rocks, and uh, <laughs> so you know. Um, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, the, obviously, uh, if you see more lava, I think you're, uh, you know, hopefully you'll you know, become a better volcanologist, but well, uh, well, a I lot got, of opportunities to see lava here. Well, I, I want to, uh, before we wrap up, I, I, I want to close with, a with one final question about, um, mm -hmm. where, where this is going from here, what the future holds for not only volcanology, but, but how our understanding of uh, volcanoes in general is going to change uh, our lives maybe going forward or our understanding of, of the earth generally. So uh, could you, can you take us on maybe some of the, the trends and things that you see unfolding maybe in your lifetime uh, in volcanology that excite you? Yeah, for me, just in the last 14 years, like I've seen the quality of the data and the instrumentation, like I said, get so much better. Um, and uh, it's cheaper, higher quality, and and uh, easier to deploy. So you know the opportunities to collect really robust data are just so much better now than they were um, when I started. You know I, I work a lot with um, webcams and thermal cameras, you know, to monitor the eruptions. And you, you can imagine just like probably in large part due to you know smartphone technology, you know, increasing at a really rapid pace. The quality of the webcams and camera systems that you can put out now uh, is just orders of magnitude better than it, what, what it was, you know, 14 years ago. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that is true for the other fields like seismology and ground deformation. That's just the, um, the, the quality of the data and the volume of the data is, is so much better now. Um, but like we talked about, you know, that's obviously a challenge, you know, when you have huge data sets. And so, you know, machine learning is kind of the, uh, is uh, a really hot topic these days. And, kind of quantitative modeling is uh, another way to kind of, you know, make the most of all of this data coming in. Um, I think that there is a total connection between volcanology and coastal science. These are areas of geology that are happening fast, you know, mm -hmm. it's true. Yep. And uh, the, I, I do think, you know, it used to be as we used the Orville Magoon model where you'd go on the beach and kind of lick your finger, check the wind. <laughs> Look at it real good, touch the sand, get the grain size in your fingers. Uh, and of course, there was good data. I don't want to uh, sell Orville short, but there was a hell of a lot of intuition and just soaking it in through using all your senses to. And, and nowadays uh, on the coast, we are moving into the big data uh, realm. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the same thing is happening in the volcano universe and in and on the big island of Hawaii, those things in that Venn diagram are very much overlapped. Mm -hmm. You're you're right. And what's great about working at HVO, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, is that you know we can collect these great data sets and, and whatnot. But um, there is still you know uh, a lot of importance put in um, you know boots on the ground, uh, observing things with the naked eye, and like you said, gaining that kind of intuitive understanding you know, as a means to, you know, help you interpret the data. And, uh, so I think that's still, you know, very much valued uh, here. And, um, and you know, uh, with the accessibility that we have and the amount of activity, I, I, you know, I think that it's still going to continue for many years. Well, what an extraordinary professional career. I've got to say, uh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you and, uh, and sharing your insights and just taking us on a tour of this incredible part of the planet. Um, I can't wait to get there. I hope I have a chance to, to get up to the National Park Observatory and get a first-hand look. Uh, so I can't wait to can't wait to learn more. And uh, maybe there's a chance we can touch base. And uh, absolutely, it, I, I, I sure would love to. I'll be here, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It is Dr. Matthew Patrick. He's a research geologist at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory on the island of Hawaii, the Big Island. Uh, and has been at the uh, observatory for 14 years, one of the great experts in the USGS pantheon of scientists that uh, 
our tax dollars pay for it. These are the pros. These are the guys who know what they're doing. And I just can't thank you enough for work, the work that you do and for taking time to share it with our audience on the American Shoreline Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for chatting with me. Oh, to be the hotels, my father's